The thing they don't tell you about producing a podcast is that, honestly, this job is at least 25% Googling, which is how I learned that if you go to the FBI's website, you'll see this video. While the world has witnessed a thriving economic partnership between China and the U.S. for decades... It's called Made in Beijing, the plan for global market domination. It's 32 minutes long, and it plays like a federal riff on true crime TV, something you'd watch at a Holiday Inn. Behind the scenes, it is a complex relationship where each country sees the other as a potential adversary. It's warning American companies, China is coming for your products and it's stealing your intellectual property. We have the receipts. President Xi Jinping is intent on re-establishing China's dominance in the Pacific. Their tactics do not mirror free economic development, forced technology transfers, acquisitions of foreign companies, intellectual property theft, and industrial espionage are widespread. There's a segment on semiconductors, another on building materials, and then... There's Operation Purple Maze. The story starts in the 2010s in Bondurant, Iowa. Population 8,000. The town sits right outside Des Moines in Corn Country, USA. And by September, the stalks are tall and dry, nearly ready for harvest. One morning, a farmer calls the cops. There's this guy hanging around a field near town. And he's wearing a suit. A big SUV dropped him off. To the untrained eye, Bondurant's fields might look identical. But to those in the know, some were top-secret testing fields for Monsanto, the world's largest seed company. One acre housed tens of millions of dollars in development and research. When you think of international spies, you probably think of places like Washington, D.C., maybe New York City being targets. It turned out that the man in the field, Mo Long. He was from China, and he'd been taking the same Midwest trip over and over for months. And Bondurant, well, it's the sort of place where outsiders stick out, especially when they're caught digging around in somebody else's soil. But federal prosecutors in Des Moines claim someone was spying for China right here in Iowa. Mo would go to Iowa or Illinois, buy or steal American seed corn, and then stash it. And eventually, he and five others tried to send it home to an agricultural tech company in Beijing. All of this was part of a much bigger plan, though, to hopefully replicate the seeds for sale in China. And if you ask FBI Director Christopher Wray, strike straight at the heart of the American worker. America's agriculture is the envy of the world, and we're very proud of it, and we should be. And whenever we're the best at something, somebody else is chasing us. China's goal is to take what it can and become essentially self-sufficient and put American businesses out of business. But here's what the FBI's warning video doesn't say. If you leave Bondurant, Iowa, and take a drive down the highway, all that corn that you'll see out the window, there's a decent chance it's bound for China. It's a country that's seen incredible growth over the last 50 years. And with that, major changes in the country's diet and agriculture. With 1.4 billion people to feed and a party narrative to upkeep, President Xi Jinping is more focused on food security than ever. So what's the plan? And what does it mean for China's relationship with the U.S.? I'm Lacey Healy. 
and this is Things That Go Boom. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. To understand what's going on in China today, we have to stay in the past just a little bit longer. February 2012, to be exact, when China was near a turning point. The country's president, Hu Jintao, was about to step down after 10 years in power. And the man who would take the job, well, he was on state business, taking a trip down memory lane. Good evening. I am truly honored to formally welcome Vice President Xi Jinping from the People's Republic of China to Iowa. That's then-Governor Terry Branstad opening a state dinner for Xi at Iowa's capital. Flags from the U.S., China, and Iowa hang from the ceiling. A crowd of suits take their seats in gold chairs. The image is a far cry from when the two first met in 1985, when, as the lore goes, Xi Jinping fell in love with the American Midwest. It's very difficult to glean that much about who Xi Jinping truly is and what his attitude to the U.S.-China relationship is from Iowa and from his two weeks there in 1985. That's Su Lin Wang. She's a journalist at The Economist and the host of The Prince, a podcast about Xi, which is how she learned that back then, maybe even more than now, he was somebody with a lot to prove. Xi Jinping was born into Chinese Communist Party royalty. His dad was one of the founding fathers of modern China and fought alongside Mao Zedong in the Civil War. And for the first years of his life in the 1950s, he lived in luxury. Security guards, nannies, housekeepers, the whole nine yards. But when Xi Jinping was nine years old, his dad fell out with Mao and was purged. And Xi Jinping's whole world was turned upside down. This was just around the time that the Cultural Revolution was getting started. And this was when Mao Zedong unleashed mobs loyal to him across Chinese society. And they would beat torture and kill anyone they saw as an enemy, which was, you know, very, very loosely defined. And and it was defined by Mao and his Red Guards. And so these mobs were unleashed onto Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping talks about how he was given five minutes to live by these Red Guards, and he genuinely feared for his life. Xi's family lost everything. And for the first time in his life, he was hungry. So food and food security and not having enough to eat are all things that Xi Jinping can very, very personally relate to, even if he grew up in the top 0.001% of Chinese people. Between 1958 and 1961, 30 million Chinese people starved to death during the Great Famine. But even after that, food was still a serious issue, and the Xi family name no longer protected him from imprisonment. Once the Cultural Revolution started, he was sent to a detention center 
He talks about how he jumped out of one of the windows of the detention center in the middle of the night. Uh, it was raining and he ran home to his mom, shivering and begged her for a piece of food because he was so hungry. And she threw him out into the dark night because he still had a few siblings at home and his mother was worried that if she was caught feeding a counter-revolutionary, that would get her into trouble and, and, you know, no one would be able to look after his younger siblings. Mao Zedong's government also believed that China's most privileged urban youth should learn humility from the peasants. And learn the value of hard work, so to speak. So the country shipped 17 million young people off to the countryside, including Xi Jinping. Where conditions are brutal. So, you know, there's no electricity in the village he goes to. He lives in a cave. He is forced to do very, very hard farm work. There is not enough food again, a recurring theme. And he eventually comes across a piece of raw meat and he just gobbles it down uncooked because he hadn't seen meat in such a long time. That's his reality for seven years. I don't think there are many other world leaders who who can put that on their resume. Xi eventually gets his first job with a top Chinese military officer and decides to go back to the provinces. It was seen as a way of proving yourself, putting the work in for the party. So he goes off to this rural backwater in Hebei province, which is nearby Beijing, and he starts as a deputy party secretary and so the number two person in, in that seat, and he works his way up through the Chinese Communist Party. And one day, at the tender age of 32, he gets the call that he's going on his first diplomatic trip to America. It turns out they didn't have much clothing, and so they had one Western suit each, and every night they would wash their shirts and wash their socks in the sinks of their hotel rooms to make sure they were dry for the next day and so that they would look presentable. She and the delegates mostly stayed in hotels. But for two nights while passing through the town of Muscatine, Iowa, they did homestays, like exchange students. They had a potluck dinner for the Chinese delegates. Xi Jinping apparently had no idea what a potluck dinner was, and it was very difficult trying to explain what a potluck dinner is, especially through a translator. At home, he slept in a family's spare bedroom, once belonging to their grown son that was apparently covered in posters of Star Trek and Star Wars. His host sister asked him if he'd seen any American movies. And he said he had seen The Godfather and The Deer Hunter. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Make of that what you will. (laughs) But the world, including America, hoped that the communist country might steer itself into capitalist growth. So much so that Iowa and Xi's Hubei delegation signed a sister state agreement. China is now the state's third largest trading partner. And the Muscatine, Iowa house he stayed in has been turned into a museum and a destination for Chinese tourists. Su Lin thinks that Xi's experience there probably did make a real impact on him. He's hosted the Iowans he met in China and exchanged letters over the years. But he wasn't just there to make memories. The story goes that the night before Xi Jinping and the other four Chinese officials left for Iowa, Xi Jinping's dad invited them over for dinner, a very simple Chinese meal, and said, your job in Iowa is to learn how to feed our people. Wendong Zhang is an assistant economics professor at Cornell University with a focus on agriculture. 
And he told me that China's hunger during Xi Jinping's childhood was partially because farms weren't yielding enough food for everybody. When you are thinking about the late 1950s and early 1960s, the Chinese governmental structure is still the commune system. So it's a part of the communist system where you don't work for your farm, but your whole village is sort of public owned at the farm. So people don't have the necessary incentive to work really hard because you show up and you will get credits, you will be fed, you don't really care about the output. That all started to change in the 1980s, around Xi's first trip to Iowa. The country was experimenting with agricultural reforms that could stem its food insecurity. Essentially, the major change is that the individual farmers, like my grandpa and my uncle, would be in charge of your own farm. So you don't own your own farm. So China actually bans private land ownership. So you don't own your own land. But the Chinese government essentially designed a clever way to say that you can pretend to own your land. The village owned the land, but based on your household count, will give the land for free to you as a 30-year lease. China called this the household responsibility system. You are in charge of your farm allocated to you, and you figure out how to maximize the profitability by choosing your own crop mix and inputs and, and marketing prices. And it actually worked. Once people started running their own farms, agricultural output and value went up. All that said, there were still a lot of limitations on China's food system. Wen Dong grew up in a rural village in the northern Shandong province. His family grew maize and wheat, and he remembers eating a lot of corn porridge. But while the average American farm was around 450 acres then, theirs sat on two. So imagine that if you only have two acres to work with, you cannot make a lot of money at all, right? So that's why if you're looking at now the production scene, no one in their village actually is growing that. Everyone is growing vegetables in high-tunnel greenhouses. Honeydew melons, cucumbers, tomatoes, that's where the money is today. And more importantly, a greenhouse full of produce is just more efficient on less acreage. In a country where less than 10% of its map can even grow food. More than half of your land is very harsh environment for people, livestock, or crops. So we want to allocate these limited resources to things that we absolutely care about. We have to retain acres for wheat and rice. We have to retain acres for vegetable production because they are perishable near the cities. In the 1990s, the government set a goal to produce at least 95% of its own wheat and rice. And once they cleared that, 99 to 100. They essentially give up on soybean. They say, we don't have enough land resources, so we can rely on the global markets. Forty years ago, China's leadership might have balked at the idea of buying from overseas. But since then... These policies have helped the country lift around 800 million people out of poverty. So if you think about my dad, so he started as a high school physics teacher in the ninth, early 1980s. He earned on a per month level probably like 10 U.S. dollars per month. Now, Wendong says, he's taking home closer to 1,200. And that growth? It's changed the Chinese diet. When people get richer, 
They want more food. They want more protein, and they want more specialty products. <laughs> For the people who are especially richer, that is the top ten, fifteen percent of the people in China, especially in urban areas, they are no longer just satisfied eating what their parents are having. Wendang says, "Gone are the corn porridge days." So, so I want to eat the steam buns with pork, and I want to try、uh, beef, stewed beef. Today, China eats more meat than any other country in the world, and all that food, well, it has to eat too. Eighty-five percent of the soybean China needs, mainly primarily for livestock feed, are coming from the overseas. So, either coming from Brazil or U.S. or Argentina. Between 2000 and 2020, China's food imports grew from under 10 billion dollars to 158 billion. It's bringing in more products than anyone. And people want high-quality, interesting food, like Chilean cherries, for example. The Chilean cherry is much larger than the Chinese native cherry, so this is what the nerdy economist would talk about. This is a conspicuous consumption that you can brag your neighbors that you look that I have something bigger because now I have money. If you look at Washington State. These larger and most pretty and probably very sweet cherries are not going to New York City, so the New York customer actually don't even see them. So they are all going to Asia, and a lot of them are going to China. And all of this trade—it's a double-edged sword. China needs other countries to eat. That's helped the CCP forge ties with other nations and fight hunger. On the other hand, China needs other countries to eat. A thought that. Seems to haunt Xi Jinping's food policy. One of the key things that he emphasized a lot is security. So now the rhetoric is that yes, it is still a strategic opportunity, but alongside with unprecedented risks. And if there's anything to know about Xi Jinping, it's that he loves a good slogan. So he used a phrase that the food that we give to the Chinese people. Our food bowl should be in our own hands to make sure that we are free of these risks for several reasons. That's after the break. I would ask all of you to please join me in raising our glasses to our longtime friend, Vice President Xi Jinping, and the long-lasting friendship between Iowa. In China, there's one more thing I should probably mention about Xi Jinping's reunion trip to Iowa in 2012. 感谢爱奥瓦州朋友为我们举行盛大的欢迎晚宴。After thanking Governor Terry Bramstad for his speech, she said, "I'd like to send my best regards to everyone present and to the over three million people of Iowa." It's not so clear how well he did or did not know the man with the glasses sitting at table 44. Mo Hai Long, our guy from the FBI website, he'd recently been caught sniffing around a Monsanto test field about 20 minutes away. A year later, he'd be arrested for stealing American intellectual property. The FBI was filing more and more cases like Mo's, but judging from the itinerary of the vice president's trip, a visit to Muscatine, tractor rides, meetings in Washington. The U.S. was still more than happy to play the gracious host, 
There was a lot of interest in the U.S. in trying to figure out, okay, who is this guy? What are his interests? What mechanisms can we set up to try and get a, a line on him? That's Arthur Kroeber. He runs a consultancy on China's economy and global influence. It was just past a fairly important inflection point, actually, which was the global financial crisis. The stock market is now down 21%. Veteran traders saying they've never seen anything like it. We're now down 43%. The economy of the United States of America, and as a consequence, the worldwide economy, could be plunged into a very, very deep hole. For years, America's leaders thought that China's opening up was actually good for the U.S. Because China would be able to buy more stuff, it would be sort of a contributor to global demand. And as long as China sort of played by the rules of the global economic system, it would be fine. But the country drifted farther and farther away from Washington's expectations, modeling its economy less on America's free market. And it continued to grow. By the time you get into the post-global financial crisis era, it's clear that China is a much more formidable economic force. It has companies that are really technologically sophisticated. And China has also modernized its military quite a bit. As early as Xi's nostalgic U.S. tour, the American narrative around Beijing was changing. Here's Joe Biden at the State Department in 2012. As Americans, we welcome competition, but cooperation can only be mutually beneficial if the game is fair. And that tension has become the bedrock of the U.S.-China relationship. They are taking advantage of us, okay? Because they're doing too well. They're competing directly with U.S. companies, supposedly. I think in reality, they're not doing very much of that, but that's the story. It doesn't help that the country's penchant for IP theft, like Mo Hailong stealing seed corn, has increasingly seemed to yield real results for China that go beyond the ag sector. It's actually more of a severe threat because China was theoretically using this misappropriation of IP to create direct competitors to U.S. technology companies or to strengthen its military. And the narrative around China's president, that's changed too. Here's Su Lin Wang. Xi Jinping is driven by power, by an understanding of his own history and China's history, by the sense of privilege and entitlement because he genuinely believes he is a true inheritor of the Chinese Communist Party revolution. There was a lot of speculation, both among Chinese people, but also foreign journalists and China watchers, that Xi Jinping might be pretty open and a bit of a reformer because his dad was known to have that kind of attitude. But that turned out to not be the right conclusions to draw. Over the past 10 years, Xi Jinping has made China much less free, much more closed, and much more authoritarian. He is driven by this absolute fear of chaos, an obsession with control. There are all these people very, very loyal to Xi Jinping at the very top of the party now. And there is a real emphasis on national security. So everything in China now is framed around what are the national security implications of this? And national security is very, very broadly defined and defined by the Chinese Communist Party. And of course, food security is one of these national security priorities. And if you hear Xi talk about his vision for China, more often than not, you'll hear him wax about self-sufficiency, the holding of the food bowl. So there is a very strong desire to make sure, as a matter of basic governance, that everyone in China can be adequately fed. And that's no easy task, given that China has 
essentially 20% of the world's population, but only 7% of the world's arable land. There's always this concern, you know, we, China, are a lonely country. We have no allies. What if we get in a big war with someone? We have to be able, in a really bad situation like that, to meet the basic needs of our population. Which is why this effort to become self-sufficient, it doesn't just apply to food. Under the Xi administration, China has rolled out several major initiatives aimed at modernizing the country. Initiatives that could have a real impact on China's food supply, but also a real impact on China's standing as a major power. First, there's the Belt and Road Initiative. Which was a huge sort of infrastructure investment program around the world. This involves partnering with nearly 150 countries to expand global trade routes and policy. And then the Made in China 2025 Industrial Policy Program, which was unveiled in 2015, which a lot of people came to see, again, as an effort by China to become a peer competitor to the U.S. and a lot of the technologically intensive industries that are really critical to the U.S. economy. Something that the U.S. found more than a little annoying. But for China, this is sort of a catch-22. The country wants to grow and prosper and, yes, compete with other world powers. But it needs to feed its people. No matter how you slice it, that means investing in itself, which is partly why the country plans to produce 90% of its own agricultural equipment by 2025. And related to that goal, build up its seed industry. See, genetically modified seeds can be designed to yield more crops, fight pests, and withstand increasing climate stress. Not in China, where people have been dealing with record-breaking temperatures since early July. This is China's largest freshwater lake turned bone dry. Authorities are battling one of the worst droughts seen in more than 50 years. Falling river levels have left hydroelectric power stations unable to produce enough energy. So it's not just a matter of can we feed our population, but can we feed our population with a minimal reliance on imports? And even that can be a challenge. Economist Wendong Zhang says what we've all seen over the last couple of years, trade carries its own risks. More recently, with the U.S.-China trade war and the Russia-Ukraine uh, situation, where this is exposed that if you rely on the international markets, there could be a lot more volatility that is out of your control. China is so big that... Even if you have a 10% shortage for the wheat and rice production, for example, there's no other countries can quickly produce this massive quantity. That the 10% of the shortfall in China is too big for the global market to handle. China's answer has been to diversify its trade, sometimes for political benefit as much as keeping the shelves stocked. China's been increasing its food imports, for example, from countries like Brazil which can send a less obvious but equally powerful message to its top frenemy. One thing that's been very interesting feature of both the Trump and Biden administrations is that while the relationship has grown a lot more contentious on many dimensions, there has been a very, very active effort to promote U.S. agricultural exports to China. Some of America's reddest states, represented by Congress's biggest China hawks, rely on the country to buy billions of dollars in corn, soybeans, and more. And I think from the Chinese perspective, it's useful to have that kind of as a bargaining chip. But the general political or ideological atmosphere in the foreign states tends to be much more conservative than the country as a whole, tends to be a little bit on the libertarian side of things. 
So to the degree that politicians from these states represent not just the material interests of this or that industry, but also kind of a political ideology or ethos, they are you know, very disposed to view China as a problem because it's a, you know, a geopolitical threat and because it's a country that has a very different and non-democratic political system and this is viewed as a problem. Food production in the U.S. is a lot more closely connected to China than many people realize. In fact, Smithfield Foods controls about a quarter of the U.S. pork market, and it's owned by a company in Hong Kong. So there's very strong support in farm country for a lot of sales to China. For Trump, because a lot of his political support came from the rural states. The Smithfield acquisition happened in 2013, three months before Mo Long's arrest. The purchase created enough of a stir in Washington to get the company's CEO yanked in front of the Senate Agricultural Committee. Here's former Senator Pat Roberts, a Republican from Kansas. I mean, did you expect that this committee would hold a hearing on the, on the acquisition? Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I contemplated that, uh, no. Did you realize you were the victim of a Chinese communist plot? Senator, I did not. I, to this to this moment, I'm not sure I understand. I'm the victim the of a control, communist plot. And the so. control of your company somehow to allow China to control the pork industry? Uh, Senator, I was not aware of that. Well, they own our debt, so you know, be careful here. For what it's worth, last year, Smithfield opened a 20 million cubic foot automated distribution center in northwest Kansas. That's 15 times the size of the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. Today, red state representatives walk a bizarre tightrope. Success means talking just enough smack about China to earn credit with your constituents, but not so much that you get a call from the Farm Bureau. And, you know, that's a microcosm of the U.S. as a whole. I mean, if you look not just in agriculture, but across the whole scope of U.S.-China relations, there's a tension between the view that China is this big problem, a geopolitical threat, a technological competitor, and an ideological adversary on the one hand, and the fact that it's one of our biggest economic partners across many, many sectors. The vast majority of U.S. companies in most sectors view China fundamentally as an opportunity that they don't want to see destroyed. During the Trump administration, there was a lot of antagonistic rhetoric on China, and there were these export controls and tariffs put on. But there was also continuous negotiations for a trade deal. Biden administration has done nothing like that. There has been basically no real efforts to engage China on any kind of agreement. But the general antagonism isn't always one-sided. China can be equally unwilling to negotiate or take responsibility for its own problematic behavior, like IP theft. People need to understand that the relationship is complex and interdependent. It is not reducible to a set of, you know, two or three moral axioms. There are trade-offs which are really complicated to make, and we're not going to make those trade-offs in the best way unless we air all of the issues, you know, very publicly and very thoroughly. Sometimes it feels weird to personify countries. But even though this is a pretty niche part of the U.S.-China relationship, it's hard not to compare their respective journeys with food to the overall arc of their diplomacy. America has long seen itself as the global agricultural leader and innovator. The way Mr. Blasey feels about his farm goes deeper than profit and loss. 
His farm is as much a part of him as his head. It was the first country to industrialize its food supply, the home of the world's first tractor. There's evil in the world just the way there's good. And in a way, being a farmer means being on the side of what's good in nature and helping it to live and grow and protecting it against all the things that try to hurt it or kill it. And it's also a country whose policy and leaders haven't totally reckoned with the reality of co-sharing global leadership. They've said, look, the story of the world today is of a contest between democratic and authoritarian regimes. We believe in the U.S. that democracy is better, and so we're going to fight very hard to preserve and promote democratic values. And we also, we recognize that one of the problems of democracy in the last 10 years is that it is seen by a lot of people as dysfunctional and not delivering good results for people. The subtext of that, which they will not say, is like, we have to prove that the United States can deliver as well for its people as the Communist Party has delivered for its people over the last 20 years in China. And I think a lot of people in the Biden administration in Washington would deny this. But I, to me, that's the fundamental difference. We no longer consider it to be in the national interest for China to be highly successful economically. We can't prevent them from being successful if they work really hard on that, but we can throw some sand in the gears. From the party's perspective, they see America and its allies as doing everything that they can to keep China down. They think that the West is selfish and wants to keep power in the West and is denying the inevitable, which is the rise of China. And I think that's something often that's missed over here is that a very large proportion of people who are alive in China today have personal memories of basically not having enough to eat. And the fact that this is no longer a problem is, is a huge choice, source of pride. Food is important in all countries. It is particularly salient in Chinese culture. People invest a lot of mental energy in thinking and talking about food just generally. <laughs> If you go to like a dinner party in the U.S. or whatever, people talk about the weather or their various sort of default topics that are random. In China, the default topic is always the food, right? The, the thing that you can go to immediately that is non-contentious and is the sort of the icebreaker or whatever is talking about, you know, the stuff that's on the plate in front of you and, and, and so forth. So food is, is authentically, I think, quite central in Chinese culture generally but also this move from what was fundamentally, until the mid-1980s, a food-short country, where a lot of people were somewhat hungry a lot of the time, to one where this is not an issue. That, yeah, that is quite salient in people's psychology today. Things That Go Boom is distributed by Inkstick Media and PRX. This episode was produced by Christina Stella and me and edited by Nikki Galtzlin, Katie Toth, and Sahar Khan. Our music for the show is written by Darian Shulman, and Robin Wise makes each episode sound sweeter than a fresh Chilean cherry. Thanks to the supporters and foundations that make our work possible, the Carnegie Corporation of New York and Pleasures Fund, as well as Inkstick supporters, including the Cologne Foundation, Frank Newmark Foundation, Prospect Hill Foundation, and the Jubitz Family Foundation. If you're listening and you like what we do, we would love to hear from you. As always, go on over and leave us a review. 
And come visit us anytime on social at Inkstick Media. Happy New Year. And we'll see you right back here in two weeks. Sorry, it is Iowan, right? What do you guys call the people? It is Iowan. (laughs) No, that's a good question. Okay. um, (laughs) Sorry, let me tell that story again. 